All right, how's it going? You're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours, and we are on episode 35, which means that episode 50, which seemed ludicrous when I started this, is uh, approaching on the horizon, which is obviously fairly bonkers. And I'm kind of feeling I should mark that milestone in some particular way. So if you've got any ideas, perhaps a guest you think I should uh, try and bring in, or yeah, anything really, let me know, podcast at wearelookingsideways.com, or you can find uh, all the social stuff on the website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. So yeah, let me know. So on to today's episode, which is another instalment from my recent trip to Munich in January 2018, and features uh, snowboarder Anne Floor Markser. So who is Anne Floor? Well, she's been at the top of the women's game for well over a decade now and is one of those rare snowboarders who's managed to earn the kudos of the industry across all fronts, really, contests, media, film parts. I remember first seeing her at the European Open back in the day, which we do talk about because I was at the, that event, which um, I think was probably about 15 years ago. And then, yeah, watching as her career went from strength to strength and then one milestone after another... Notable bricks in this particular CV wall include a prestigious 2006 Rookie of the Year award with Transworld Snowboarding, sections with Standard Films, and of course that Freeride World Tour title. Still, as you'll hear, Anne Floor is uh, not defined by her snowboarding. As somebody who's been in this game so long, she'd hate me using the word career, as you're going to hear. Today, she's determined to use her experiences and platform to speak passionately and convincingly on the issues that concern her and try and make a change for good. On the snow, as a professional snowboarder who's been on the scene for years, like I say, and he's got a massively wide-ranging experience of every aspect of the uh, industry, these issues concern themes we're becoming increasingly familiar with on the podcast. Gender imbalance, the pay gap, the different opportunities afforded to men and women, and so on. Off the snow... We're talking about issues such as her recent championing of the great Riders for Refugee cause, which we get into in some detail. And above all, she isn't afraid of making hard arguments and using inarguable logic to support her case. Now, that's a tendency that meant she, that's meant she's not exactly popular among a certain type of male gatekeeper who like to deny the very existence of some of these issues and like to perpetuate, perpetuate the idea that any woman daring to speak out about them is some kind of uh, strident harpy who's got to be silenced. I'm sure that every woman listening to this doesn't need me to mansplain that one to them. But yeah, for me, in the end, you can't really argue because when I asked Anne Fleur to do the the podcast, she was a little unsure if she was, as she put it, worthy to be on air, which I thought was pretty hilarious. But for me, I was interested in talking to her because in the end, by her deeds, she's a pioneer and the progression of women's snowboarding in recent years demonstrates exactly why it's important why people like Amflor use their platform to speak truth to power. Take the incident at the uh, Burton European Open, she describes. Now, whether you like it or not, there's a direct line between Amflor and Cheryl Mass pushing the organisers to be allowed to ride the slopestyle course that day. And riders like Anna Gasser, Katie Ormrod and Julia Marino today pushing the limits of slopestyle snowboarding, which is something that everybody, man or woman, celebrates today. And whether you like it or not, that story begins with small, important and often unpopular gestures. And these are as important in the development of snowboarding as any of the other hackneyed tales we've all told each other so many times and which we've all heard so often. And that's why I think it's worth talking about. And that's why I wanted to get her on the show to discuss her life and career. So, yeah, really enjoyed this one. I want to say uh, thanks to AFM for coming on the show and sharing your experiences with me. So, yeah, here it is. Uh, enjoy. Valeria is uh, an amazing, radical uh, Spanish woman. She has okay. started the whole Longboard Girls crew. Okay, and I don't know, I'm not so familiar. I'm just going to tell you this as a hint, but um, so the whole skateboard industry was crashing for quite a bit. Yeah. And what she's done is she's just uh, created a network of 
girls and motivating girls pretty much all around the world to to get together and go skateboarding or longboarding. And by doing so, they reversed the curse on the skateboard industry because the longboard sales then took the whole business back up because so many girls started longboarding. And so maybe the one who started that. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It's quite incredible. So yeah. I'm going to write down, how do you spell it? Valeria. Oh, I, I can send you a list later. Yeah, Valeria, she was here yesterday. Maybe I could ask her if she's still around today. Cool. Because since then, she's so they made movies and... Their movies are so inspirational. Like it's this group of women that they, you know, they skate so fast and they go to really beautiful locations and yeah. they have this really radical approach and this really positive outlook on everything they do. Yeah. And um, since then, she started an association. She helps lots of refugees. She does amazing TED talks about um, about women and sexualization of women in our sports. Okay. And she's just a you kind of have to dig when you talk to her because she's she's never going to acknowledge everything she does because she doesn't see it as such a big thing. But she, uh, to me, she's on top of an empire. Yeah. Without even realizing. So she's, what she's um doing. she's basically followed a passion of her own and and through this created a movement by the sounds of it. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And she's still into it and she's so busy because she does so many projects at once and wow. she's quite an incredible. Yeah, she woman. sounds um, perfect mm-hmm. for the podcast. <laughs> Definitely. So. Um, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Yeah. Very tired today, but I'm a bit okay. tired. Mm-hmm. So we're at ISPO, um, and how many years have you been coming here? <laughs> I think it's been nineteen years now. Yeah. Okay. So I, you're a lifer. <laughs> I used to come with my father because he was working and in the sports business. And what did he do? Um, he was. He used to be a um, professional skier. Then he. Um, he started working for Rossignol, and he was uh, developing all the ski boots for Lange. And then he was importing Dynastar and other brands in Switzerland. So he would always come to Ispo and then I would join. <laughs> so you've got a really good uh, good overview of it. You've been seeing it for so long. And how's it been this year? Are you, are you, are you here working? Are you busy? Or are you just kind of hanging out and, and seeing how everybody is? For me, Ispo is quite an important time just because it's the three days I get to see first all my sponsors and the people I work with that I don't get the time to go see during the winter because I'm too busy snowboarding and sure. and they're all a bit everywhere in Europe geographically so it's a good place to see them and at the same time it's also a great place to see all my friends that I used to ride with 15 years ago and yeah. 10 years ago and 5 years ago. Yeah, it's a good like gathering, isn't it? It is. Gathering of the tribes. Yeah. But I was thinking about it and it's um yeah, we we do have this sense of community within the the snowboarding world. There is more of the business side on every other places like if I go to the ski hall I'll see lots of people I know uh, and then if I go to the f- like the more mountaineering I'll see lots of people I know but in the snowboarding hall you actually see lots of friends and this really sense of community that's really you, nice I think to go you to. can kind of feel it when you go in the hall as well there's a bit there's a bit of a different atmosphere I guess the snowboarders we probably would say that a little bit there is more noise isn't there? yeah there's more noise definitely <laughs> it's more fun yeah um, and how's your winter been very short just now because I started the winter, I was doing a collect, I was trying to get as many jackets to help refugees. To yeah, use, you've been uh, doing the refugee project. Yeah, Riders for Refugees. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that. I'm sure people might have seen some of it on social media, but what's what's the idea there? So last year, uh, Riders for Refugees, which is uh, Danny Burroughs and Alexis de Tarad, yep. who were journalists for Onboard and uh, Method Mag, they uh, started this association or this group of because they realized we had so many jackets in our industries and so many people that had extra jackets. And at the same time, we saw all those uh, refugees that were starting to arrive into the Alps and they were lacking Basics. warm clothes. Yeah. And and I thought it was such a genius idea because because we all have so many jackets. Yeah, there's a lot of waste in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. But not just even the industry, but also... Us as uh, personal, you know, like if I look in my cabin, I have my mom's jacket from 15 years ago and my grandparents and my brothers and we have so much stuff. And so last year I was very vocal about it on my social media because I wanted to tell people where they could bring their jackets and it was actually really important to me. And this year I just decided I was going to do more and I was actually getting involved. And uh, I uh, decided to do a collect in the southwest of France because I knew all the surf brands were there. And it's been incredible. Um, I called my friend Aline Buck because she's got a, a van. She was doing a surf trip with her van. And I said, can we use your van to bring lots of jackets to Italy? 
And she said, yes, straight away. So I started just collecting one, three jackets. I was kind of hoping it get, you know, a fair amount. But what happened is I ended up with so much stuff. All the brands uh, found so many jackets they could contribute with. Um, all the all the people that reached out because they wanted to help. So many, the transporters that ended up bringing everything because I ended up having enough to load a full truck. Wow. And obviously I couldn't handle the trans- transport on my own anymore. Yeah. And all my friends that have been helping, um, like, it's been really quite inspiring to see so many people mobilizing, really wanted to help. And then for us, then we took all those jackets and we brought them all the way to distribute them ourselves. And uh, the, they call it the jungle in Gorizia, but also along the way in different places where people actually really needed help. And I'm really, really glad I had that opportunity and that I actually get to do all the way to giving the jackets myself. And again, the jacket, you know, it does make a difference because they are cold. They are cold all day. They are cold all night. Um, but really, it's it's just a start, to start for a conversation. And then we spent two or three days with a whole bunch of them in Galicia, yeah. in the jungle. And, and really what happened was quite incredible because those people really went through hell and they really survived quite um, horrible experiences. Where, where, where do those refugees generally come from then in Italy? Depends where... When we stopped on the first stop, we stopped in Ventimiglia, which is at the border with France around Nice, which was a geographically we were going through there. Um, they were coming from Eritrea and Sudan, okay. and they had crossed. You know, Sudan is it's you know it's a civil war, civil war. Yeah, they crossed the desert. They crossed Libya in those slavery camps that we all know about now. Yeah, but they actually went through that and then. They made it through the Mediterranean Sea and then they made their way up. And um, you have to realize that they're really young. They're all between, they're all under 25. And when we stopped in Ventimiglia, they all live under a bridge, but not even on a flat road. It's under a bridge and it's in dirt and rocks and it's, it's bumpy and it gets to a river and they shower in the river. Right. And also what struck me was the... Most of them, all, or almost all of them, they were the most courageous, the more takes incredible intelligent. bravery to make a journey yeah. like that. It's, and the I one mean, who made it, it, it was just so many intelligent young men that had so much to offer to society. And yet we let them, actually the, the European government makes it um, as bad as possible for them, hoping that they would just disappear. And there was really harsh because um, the what we would hear from them, a lot of them talked about death and actually suicide because they never realized going through all this that they would end up at this place living in that. In those conditions. Exactly. Yeah. And then we, but still, we actually spent nice moments with them, which is quite crazy to talk about it that way, but I was yeah. playing soccer with them on the parking lot and yeah, yeah. they were showing me where they, they would live and we actually had to be proper, um, very genuine, humble, human... I was going to say, it's like a human contact, isn't it? And I think that's probably, the, from what I know about riders who are refugees, like those kind of gestures where you're basically treating people like humans exactly. and showing them kindness and, and listening to their stories and, and understanding where they've come from because so many misconceptions about refugees, aren't there, and where they've come from and what, what they've experienced. So to, to, to try and show some understanding, I imagine, is very appreciated. So what is, um, what's the long-term goal for Riders for Refugees? Is that, is that something that you'll get more involved in, do you think? Well, for me, I was really uh, surprised and actually astonished with what, our, <laughs> that what we did with that. Because, of course, the guys from Writers for Refugees, I was just doing my part. Um, but then I realized how much I could actually <laughs> gather in a sense of getting so many people that really wanted to help involved. Like, <laughs> I had no idea I could actually get so much, as, like, building, like getting a whole truck filled up with really warm clothes. And, I, and it's... It's not me, it's like all those people who want to participate into it. And I just realized that that network that we have, and also I was really uh, 
touched and proud about our, it's, I, I won't say industry, but more we are a group of passionate people and we actually want to give back. Yeah. And that was really emotional for me to see so many people getting out of their way to participate into this. So now I know I can actually um, somehow make a difference a little bit, or at least I want to try. Okay. So of course I, I will keep on uh, doing my best into making my part of making this a bit of a better world, kind of. Yeah. I have this thought that is, it's either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And, you know, as long as you're trying, then we can, we can all contribute. And that's, that's the biggest um, conclusion to what we've done is that we can all contribute. And it's beautiful when we all do because then we actually make a difference. Well, you're somebody that's um, not afraid to, to talk about what they believe in. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? over your career and particularly in snowboarding and as a, as a female snowboarder and, and having that experience as a female snowboarder in the competitive arena, you know, you've always been somebody that's been very passionate, very prepared to, to stand up if you think that there's a, a bit of injustice or lack of fairness. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that something that you've always had, a trait that you've always had in your life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think for me... I think it's my biggest motivation in life. Somehow it brings out a very, um, a, a huge amount of power that I don't even realize I have when there is something that I find unfair for the right reason, or I, I, at least I try. I, I, don't, I don't go at things if there is no reason. I just really try to make things better, not for myself, but as a general idea of... I feel like we all have uh, to take part of the dialogue about how we want our society or our community to become. And if we all uh, put a bit of an effort in, then there's really great things to be done and great changes to be done. And, and it's for the better of everyone. And, and then, yes, I am not afraid. It's not, it's, not a, it's not as common as you think that, though, is it? Having that viewpoint. It can be... It can be something that it can be a lonely position sometimes. Have you ever found that? In a way, I yes, because I feel sometimes I wonder how come nobody else is picking up, because the issues are quite important. Yeah. And uh, when I walk around in any um, any sports event, it's it's so in in your face. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also something that's. Um, going across all the board sports, at least, and in, in society in general. And I find that uh, when you actually speak up, then you somehow you get to reunite with so many other people who actually do their part as well. And that's been so inspiring. Um, on, the, on the female side, I'm definitely concerned what's happening in snowboarding because I am part of it. So I feel like I, I should contribute in to making sure that the, the next generations of female snowboarders should have at least the same opportunities, but hopefully much better ones that, than the ones we were lacking in so what, what my would time. You, what would you, how would you describe those situations then? What have you, you know, if you look back on, on your career and obviously you've got a great vantage point now because you've had a, very successful career, very long career in snowboarding. You've got a platform, you've got a voice. Um, when you look at it, what, what do you think the, the, the issues you'd like to address or that need addressing, what, what would they be? When I started snowboarding, the first thing, there was no structure. But still, there were some events. And I just have so many examples of the first big air I participated in. The guy won with the Backside Rodeo 7 and won a trip to Hawaii, and I, I won with the Backside Rodeo 5. So the same trick was only half a yeah, yeah. turn uh, less, and I won a T-shirt. And then, then that went through the whole time. It's always been kind of like this. And, and it's been, I guess, speaking up was all ne that needed to be done for things to evolve through the years. And when the tour in freestyle was organized, same thing. I remember going to European Open and uh, riding in for Soapsile. And they would not let women ride the Soapsile because they said it was too dangerous for women. So I ended wow, up... Well, that's kind of crazy as well because that event was like 
the most progressive event in snowboarding, supposedly. You know, at the time, that was like a run by Burton, you know, like it was, it was like, this is the, this is how a snowboarding event should be run. I mean, I was at those events and I remember what those events were like. And that doesn't really square with the idea that you were being told about that event. How was that kind of justified then? Because presumably you questioned that. I don't find that the justifications ever made sense. They just said, no, soap is too dangerous for women. You can ride the pipe. So I ended up on the top of the pipe and I had never really ridden a half pipe. And, the, and I saw another girl that was also standing there in her baggies and I went to talk to her because I could see straight away that she was also out of space. And it was through a mass and that's how we met. And then we dropped into the pipe, we took our bibs off and we crossed to the slopestyle and we rode the slopestyle and we got actually taken off by the collar. I don't know how you say it in English. But yeah, like, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, um, the collar, the collar's right. Yeah. <laughs> right, really? So you were kind yeah, of... Yeah, that happened. And then, but again, speaking up was all was needed to do to change things. So the next year we were, and also thanks to Drew Stevenson, who was making the rules of the tour at that time, and so the next year we could actually do a demonstration and a year after that there were women in the event and again you know it took time but after quite a few debates and I was at the time roommate with uh, Drew Stevenson and he was making the rules but he was also uh, using my anger so he would throw at me all the very sexist uh, male arguments on why they didn't care about women why girls were just not good enough and why did he, they didn't want to spend money on women, really. That's always the end of the yeah. line. And then every time I would just go in my... I had that rage in my stomach and I would actually think so much and always come back with an argument that couldn't be denied. Well, it's also not true because brands do spend money on women. They just spend money on women in a certain way. Um, so that argument doesn't really stand, does it? None of them do, yeah. because uh, skiing and snowboarding, we are 40% of the participants that are women. And you see that when you go snowboarding or skiing on the mountain, there's so many women involved in the sport on the participant level. But as soon as you see the structure of the sport, so events, but also sponsorship, um, anything that goes around that part of the business, all the brands, it's, they're run by men. All the, most of the budgets are distributed by men and for men, because... What I, if I think there are forty percent of the customers are women, then that means that there's a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of money that comes out from the women's sales. Of course. But if I look at all the teams in each of the brands, uh, they have so many men, and they usually have very few women. So that means that some of the the money that comes from the women's sales is actually reinvested in the sport towards the ma- the male consumers. And that's a pity because it's really holding the level and it's holding women back. Well, in it, our it's, it's, um, I mean, it, it stifles progression, basically, because, exactly. because they can't be, because that's, that's how it works, isn't it? You, you, you reinvest to, to make things better. So if you can't, if you're not, if you're getting the opportunity cut off before you can even begin, then obviously how can you change it? Exactly, and that's what uh, comes a lot, is uh, comparing the level of uh, women comparing to the level of men. Well, it's the, ta- it's the tennis argument, isn't it? But it's, nobody's it's... actually ever uh, comparing the investment and the financial support, yeah. because there is no chance then uh, when you have no support that you can be as good as the guy that, uh, you know, imagine just filming in Alaska, for example. Um, if you compare the level of the guys that have been filming in Alaska for 10 years and that represents one trip in Alaska for one person is about 15 grand. If you have to fill up the helicopter, that's four seats. So you need to find a budget to fill the four seats if you need a cameraman and and, and a photographer. So that's three seats that you have to finance yourself. Um, Most of the guys that have been there for 10 years, then if you think about it, it's like it's millions of investments. And of course, after the 10th year, you're that much better and that much more comfortable in the environment of heavy mountains, super steep mountains. If it's the first time you show up and you probably never, as a woman, it's really difficult to have enough funding to, to be able to afford that. You, Of course, the first year, you're, you're missing those nine years of, of experience. experience. Yeah. And that makes a massive difference. And what? So you talked about Drew as a sympathetic ear in the industry. I mean, Drew's probably somebody that would be great for the podcast, really. Um, such a such a Living hugely legend. influential figure in European snowboarding that perhaps people might not know about. 
as, as much as they should. But what other reaction did you get from, from the rest of the industry at large? Was it, was, you know, as somebody that was, that was actually sticking their hand up and saying like, mm, I'm not happy about this, I don't think this is fair. What, how, did, how, was, how were you treated for, for doing that? I'm just going to say another word about Drew just because I want to thank him so much because he was using my anger to get me to come back with the right arguments. And, it's, and he was using those arguments to, uh, or those points to go back to the board. And he, it's because of him that we have women in, in the freestyle uh, snowboarding scene on, on the competitions. And it's because of him that we then uh, he got equal prize money on all those events. So he found a way to using... The, the money in uh, having making sure that first ranking both men and women would get the same amount of money because I was telling him if you want this tour to be representing the the best level of snowboarding and give a, a world champion title then you need to make sure that the girl that wins an event in Finland gets enough funding that she can actually travel to the European Open and the one who wins the European Open should get enough that she could go to the Nippon Open and win the Nippon Open and and go and then on because otherwise you would end up with the ones that had more money winning the overall points yeah. over someone that would be better but that wouldn't have the funding yeah yeah and he's a genius in a way that he actually made it happen and so i would i will always be so thankful for him to be in that position at that time and having that cleverness and that open mind to do yeah. that but then um so what was the question? Well, the question was, uh, Drew, Drew's definitely like a, a special case. You know, he's, he's somebody that can, can bridge those gaps and can communicate to a lot of different areas of the industry, if you like. But I'm interested in how the industry at large reacted when you basically stuck your hand up and said, we need to change this. Well, <laughs> um, most of the times I spoke up, I was always in the idea that I wanted things to get better and the first draft was always uh, in a positive manner but the fact that I was uh, or that I am surrounded by a lot of guys that are not always unsexist can I say that <laughs> but the thing is uh, the, Di diplomatic people <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is most of them don't even realize they just think it's normal yeah. they, they, they I was asked um, so most I have had, uh, it, it's been difficult to get things to change. And the thing is, when I'm facing a wall, I will just use that much more energy to pretty much ruin it for them in a way that if they think it's so normal that women have no place in what we do, then I will raise uh, the brands and I will raise the public awareness and I will raise the media. Because I find uh, that that's been the best way to make them realize that they actually do have a moral responsibility on the way they treat women in our sport as soon as they actually have someone looking at it from the outside. So I've, uh, that's been really um, efficient in making things change for women in our industry, which is, which is great in a way because I know it does and now I can look back and say, yeah, it actually does make a change. But at the same time, it's it's just really too bad because because I would have loved for them to just realize uh, what was going on and actually help to make things better for everyone in yeah. our sport. You'd rather not have had to, to do it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've been uh, asked this question just a couple of weeks ago in an interview of this woman this journalist, she asked me how come, because she was saying she came from other sports that are much older and so they have, they've had the structure for a much longer time and she said, we can un understand that the older sport do have this sort of mentality but how come that young sports like yours also have it? Also have it, because yeah. she would think that because it's young and it's modern then and there's such a big uh, percentage of female participants that it wouldn't occur on the young sport yeah and so that was a great question because it made me think a lot on you know how we're going to have surfing and skateboarding in the next olympics and what's happening with that is almost realizing that they want to be in the olympics they then have to give equal opportunities and equal 
conditions of competitions for the female participants. And that comes as all of a sudden a brand new thing. Um, and they have no choice but actually make it happen. And then it becomes this really positive input that, oh yes, if we do um, make the women's side of our sport better, then we will get to access the Olympics. And I find it quite interesting how this is impacting, as especially the, the women's side of our sport, in such a great way. Because it's, I, I'm not sure I'm that supportive of that sort of competitions like Olympics and the mm. whole business that goes around it. Sure, yeah. But there is one thing about it. You know, like nobody will ever dare to say that a women's Olympic champion no. has anything is less, less, is than, less than a man's. A man's. Yeah, and, it's, it has equal value. Yeah. And then we talk about medals and all the countries, they count the medals and, and the equal. female yeah. medal just counts just as much as a male's. And, and when we go to the, um, to the big public, I think that's the, the greatest part of it is that at least for us women, it changes the game in, in terms of um, recognition and financial support and even just respect. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel that it's things that, I mean, you, you alluded to it just then, but do you feel more positive now about, about where things are in, in our culture? No. No? <laughs> I feel like 10 years ago we had all those premiere videos with all those girls' projects. And that was great because it actually brought a bit of happiness and a bit of motivation. And as soon as I talk about it, I have this big smile that comes on my face because it was great times for us girls. And then it was really important to me to make sure that the girls in the competition would actually, in that structure, at least have a place to be in. When I see the level of girls riding in soap style, I'm so... I am so amazed and I'm so... Yeah, it's pretty it's incredible. It's so inspirish, yeah. inspirational. And I, and if I think about it, and I think, oh, I'm having goosebumps now, but if I think that I go back to, oh, the girls are not allowed because it's too dangerous for women. <laughs> and I see the level now and I feel, well... You see Anna Gasser and you're like... Mm. Yeah, she's so <laughs> rad. She's so incredible. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, if, if we hadn't been there to make sure women actually had this opportunity of participating in those competitions yeah. then what would have happened it would have been such a big waste because when I look at them today it's, it just makes me so proud yeah yeah I'm so proud of them um, and that's the beauty of it to see what one action can lead into such a big thing for the sport altogether so that's great but if I look around what's going on with the brands we still don't have a, a, a more equal part of the teams being women you know where are the 40 percent participant uh, represented within the brands and the brands are selling the products to participate in the sport and that's what's financing the uh how do you say the, um, the progression of the sport yeah so today i feel like there is less and less women on the screen and unfortunately we have less uh, snowboard magazine and so it's great that we have so much a more focus on the women on the competition side but within the industry I still feel like uh, we kind of let it almost disappear and that's that's a shame because women have so much to offer to our sport and, there, and our sport has so much to offer to women. So how would you change it? The first thing I think is to actually uh, open the dialogue about that issue and also I would like to see the guys that have the budgets in their hands asking themselves that question. Okay, so if I have uh, that budget, how do I make sure that I redistribute it the best I can? And also on the business point of view, it, if you were really thinking about making sure, you know, there's 40% of the whole market that you're not even communicating to. And that's probably where you could the easier bring up your sales. So I don't know what the solution really is. I've just really tried my best. Yeah, to have a conversation. Yeah, and mm. to, to basically raise awareness of the issue. I mean, the classic argument that you hear is like, well, that would be tokenism almost. You know, if you have a quota, or if you say like, okay, it should be equal men and women or like market share, that's the classic kind of counter argument. Like, well, why would you do that? Because it's like a meritocracy and it should be done on ability. I mean, that's what people would say. What do you think when you when you hear that? When because basically that argument is like, well, if you do that, you might promote people who aren't deserving on a talent level. So I've been competing on the Freeride World Tour uh, the the last couple of years, 
Um, and the first year I got on the farewell tour, the women were got they got thrown out of the tour and they were put on the qualifier events. And on the qualifier events, there was no money, and it, we even had to pay to participate. And then we had to pay entrance and 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 tickets wow. to go up the mountain and food and lodging and and then the guys on the tour they would be um, lodging in big hotels and you know all that and the first guy skiing would get eight thousand dollars and on the qualifier events the first woman snowboarder would get eight hundred dollar that was not in, even enough to cover the cost of going there wow okay um, and then the last year then I did the same thing like you know I. We get the girls back on the tour, pretty much. And what's been happening, if I look two winters ago, um, I'm pretty sure that the biggest press we got in all the newspapers was uh, Estelle and I, like, going back forth, uh, winning the competitions. Yeah, and, sure. And yet we're the category that was the least... Um, Financed. Yeah, because it's still eight grand for the first skier guy, and it's now four grand for the first snowboarder woman. And so, yes, I hear, yeah, but there are more men competing. But I've always been pushing for having more girls competing, but the 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 tour itself, they don't allow more women into the the tour, so they decide that. Yeah. Um, do they give a reason why? Do they do they do they kind of justify it? Well, they'll say that there are more skiers than snowboarders, and let's say there are more guys wanting to compete than girls wanting to compete. But what I see everywhere I go, and when we're on the, co the qualifier competition, so many girls wanted to go in, sure. and they just never were allowed because the few spots were already taken. So it's always this, you know, I would like to have the conversa conversation the other way. Um, as an event, I would think, um, how do we expand? How do we... Because... Even in the big air, you know, you you, you go to a city big air, big air. There are fifty percent of the public that are women. Of course. Uh, I remember Aaron Style having that same problem. They had only guys, and they were yet still, they were selling more female T-shirts on sites than guys. And so, how did they justify it? There's the organizer that would tell me, "Oh, girls <laughs> would never dare to jump this jump," <laughs> and it made me laugh because, and I and I. I remember asking, I sent an email to all the professional snowboarders, the girls, and I asked who would jump this jump and who would like to participate in this event. All of them, each of them said, yes, we would love to. If of given. course we would if we were given the chance. Yeah. So I made a petition and I went to Aaron Stahl with my petition in the public. People were saying, what, there are actually women jumping this? That's incredible. And then I'd, I'd go all around and... That's the thing. It's like it's there's this misconception, and I think when you have an event and you only show guys, uh, and you give the guys the best conditions to ride, and the the main focus in the spotlight, then you're just pretty much telling all the girls that are watching the event that uh, it's a sport for men. For men, yeah. But it's not true, and also it's it's you know it's kind of pushing women away from our sport. So as long as you're um, pushing women away from your from the sport, it's it's not going to get better in terms of um, the level rising. And I and I will always do everything I can to somehow try to make a change in that because being in the mountains, sliding down on the snow is such a beautiful thing, and it's for everybody. For everybody, yeah. and um, and I just. And I find that it's just a narrative that we give ourselves uh, that it's so extreme and dangerous and it's <laughs> <laughs> and we are heroes for you know for doing it, but it's not it's actually something that makes you happy yeah it's something that gives you great um, self confidence and empowerment and and you know we have that thing that's so special about our sports and whether it's snowboarding or surfing or any of those we ha we do sports are give us sensation a feeling a feeling yeah and it's so magical and 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 you don't need to be a man to be able to actually realize how how great it is to do it yeah when you put it in those terms it's clear how ridiculous it is really because that is the thing that everybody has in common with it i mean that's what everybody that's why everybody does it that's why we do it yeah exactly. like you can become as good as you want in the world but you started it because it was so much fun and it yeah. gave you so much pleasure and makes you, it made you so happy yeah and then the more you talk about uh, per, uh, uh performance 
the more you forget about just that simple feel of doing the sport. That's coming back a bit in snowboarding, though, isn't it? That, that, that there is on a general level, there's more. There is more of that conversation about that experience and feeling now. That's definitely a positive thing, I think. I mean, I was speaking to the Karua boys, you know, um, great example with what they're doing and just promoting turning and how mm-hmm. that feels, you know. It's a big, you can see it in the hall this year. Everybody's got those shapes now, haven't they? And, you know, it's yeah. going to be more and more. And I find it quite fascinating to see how, you know, how each sport we really inspire each other. Yeah. Because uh, more having and more this, as well. This, this surf um, shapes going into snowboarding and realizing how much fun it is to ride those boards and and the crossover is always such a big source of inspiration yeah and it's always been spoken about but it hasn't necessarily translated to the actual equipment Mm -hmm. so much has it but yeah yeah, it's definitely definitely happening now because you surf as well right yeah i love to surf yeah (laughs) yeah even like two years ago i was in alaska for our competition and for me it was so incredible because i had gone to alaska for filming before but i never had the chance to make it to the ocean and that one time because it was a competition the first day we had the comp and the next day was still a window in the sky and so we found a little plane that could cross the mountains and we actually went surfing in Alaska and that was wow. so incredible and then six, and then six mil wetsuit yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> and now I've, I've just uh, now pretty much every trip I do I um if I get a chance, I'll, I'll do everything I can to actually make it to the water as well. Oh, yeah, because we were talking about Iceland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you've, you've surfed that right, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. Uh, last year after the competitions, I'd, we just went quickly because we wanted to look have a look at the terrain. Because this year, I decided no longer to do the competitions. Yeah, which is obviously be interesting to, to hear your reasons why for that. Well, first thing, I never really liked competing. I'm not a very competitive person. So my curse with competition is that it's, it's I win them <laughs> or I lose them. <laughs> but um, it's it's never something I liked. Right. Um, what, the pressure? Yeah, I'm not, I don't like this. I don't, I don't, I, I don't run with competitivity. Yeah. I, I love, I love riding and I love going fast and I love, you know, but... It doesn't. I don't like the setup. Yeah. I, I find free, it very restrictive, really, because okay, and we call those free ride competitions. I was about to ask: did, was that was that better? Was that a better format? Free oh, no, that's horrible. Because you you know you set up the date a year in advance, and then and also as snowboard women, we ended up always going at the end of the pack. So I used to be filming in the mountains and going to where the the, the snow was good. And I ended up on condi- conditions that were horrible and having to go after 50 male. <laughs> so 50 tracks on the mountain. Yeah. And so we can um, all, all relate to, to riding the powder field after, with 50 tracks in. And with the pressure too, because yeah. it's one thing to be riding a track mountain, but to do it on camera. Yeah. <laughs> and so, to have to put down a run. Yeah. For and sure. also, you have to ask yourself, why, why, why do I do this? And, and for me, I just, I, there was, I couldn't find any, Joy in it. Um, two years ago, when I get, went back on the, the first year, when I, in 2011, let's say, I arrived on this competition. I realized the conditions for women on the tour, and I found it uh, absolutely sh- shocking. And I decided to do them so I could win them, so I could make the whole system change. That was my motivation. Right. Uh, that's why I did them. Then I went away from it because I didn't need to do them. So I went back and I said, okay, I'll, you know, you guys need to change the way you you treat women. And then I went to do incredible trips we went to greenland by sailboat sailing through uh icebergs and hiking you know there was a beginning of the splitboarded as well and that was sure. so incredible because then all the, this terrain was just available to snowboarders as well and there was no more boundaries it was so incredible and then okay so two years ago i ended up going back to the competitions and i was quite skeptic about it uh, but i met this incredible little, little human being uh, whose name was estelle ballet she was 10 years younger than I am, but yet it was an instant coup de foudre as a friendship. She, it was so much fun sharing that, that season with her. We, just so much joy and motivation, and I could 
on that year, I actually could actually do runs that were up to what I wanted to accomplish in my snowboarding, or at least I would get to the bottom. It was never about winning or not winning. It was always about doing doing a run that I wanted to do and, and how you rode, yeah. Find something that was in, in that would that I would find inspirational for myself to go at. You know, you want to look at a run that that you're happy to do and actually super motivated. And that year worked out really good. And then. Uh, And then last year, um, and then at the end of the winter, Estelle passed away, and and then from, and then, if it was if it hadn't been for her, I would never had found as much joy into those events. So everything we shared that season was incredible and magical, but with her not being around, that was a way as well. And I I need for myself to make sure that I keep the love for snowboarding and keep the love for the thing I love the most, you know? And that is not in a competitive surrounding. It's in the mountains and it's in the wilderness. And with this, I have this curiosity and this adventurous spirit. And when I'm out in the elements, it just really make me happy. And so I decided, okay, if it's, you know, if I have another year to spend in the mountain, I might as well do it for the right reason and in the right place. Because life is short and you might as well just make it the best you can. And in a way that'll make you happy as well. Yeah. So what's the plan? So the plan is that um, we are going to Iceland uh, the whole month of March and a bit more with my friend Aline Buck, who's another incredible rad woman. And we will uh, go discover the mountains and also go surfing in cold water and camping on top of the mountains and all the things that we love. But And along the way, we will tell the story of women in Iceland and we'll go meet incredible women and women's initiative that happened there because it's uh, quite fascinating the the ability of Iceland as a as a society uh, to always ask themselves how can we become a better place to live for everyone and they're always looking in into more equality for everyone and as a result from that uh, we see so many fierce women and such a positive radical feminism that's just uh, taken by like taken as a, such a positive thing for everyone altogether and. And that's very inspirational for me. Yeah, a very progressive society. I mean, you can tell that as soon as you visit that place, can't you? Yeah. And is it a film project then? It's a film project. So we will be filming and the film will come out next fall. And uh, But for myself, just for myself, you know, I am just so excited to go to Iceland for as as much as I can because we'll stay four weeks with filmers. But Annie and I already decided that we'd stay longer to actually have a proper feel for the place and get to meet the people because you know when you're concentrating on the project it's, it becomes this professional thing that you make you got to make sure you get everything that you need for your project but uh, the beauty of it is when you actually get to spend time and get the, the, the culture but not actually having it really have an imprint on you and so that's yeah that, I'm very excited yeah that sounds spending like a time there. super fun project so it sounds like the the story of your career has been a lot of evolution, basically. Because we were talking before I started recording. I think the first time I remember meeting you and, and hearing about you was uh, 2006, Trans World Rookie of the Year. Big, big start to your career, obviously. Thank you for remembering that. <laughs> yeah, it shows what a geek I am. Um, but that, that was obviously... And you were known for film parts and you were known for, for, for backcountry um, riding and... And then, like you say, you've been through the, the competition phase and you've, you've tried different things there and kind of come in full circle back to what you, what, what you like about snowboarding. Is that, is that always how you've looked at it? It's been a constant evolution? Yeah, I think that's what makes it interesting, you know? I love having... I, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, too, about snowboarding that you can, you can go from so many different um, disciplines in our sport and there is always such a huge amount of things you don't know yet and that you haven't experienced yet. And for me, it's just been an incredible journey where I get to really always uh, get to see what was next. And and for me, it was really fascinating to just discover a whole new world that I, 
I should know about because I'm a snowboarder, but I actually don't know anything about the mountain. And then, then I would learn about it and I would get better at it. And then it was always this, it's a, it's for the challenge, but I don't, I won't even say it like that because it's for the, the pleasure of discovering new ways to enjoy what I love the most. What did you like about it when you started? Because you started young, right? I don't know. I, 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 I was really young when I started skiing. I was one year old. Wow. Before I could walk. That is young. <laughs> That is young enough. <laughs> But also I had no clue that you could uh, be a professional snowboarder, at least when I was a teenager and I started snowboarding. But my family, they were all ski racers. And I, even when I was a kid, I always refused to race. I was, it was, it's never been in my DNA, really. Right. I just liked snowboarding for the freedom it was offering. And for that space, it, I always had that little... like. <laughs> kind of rebellious uh <laughs> that's what you like to buy though because that's what one of the big appeals for these sports i mean that's something i hear a lot from people on the show like you know this this feeling that you've kind of found your your tribe if you like you know you yeah. find your group of people there was more personality there was you know m more things to be discovered there was more energy and there was more freedom and then for me it was an open open, open door to the world really and a lot of space for Because I like, um, sometimes I, I, I might. Sometimes I do take a lot of space, and I need a lot of space. Just, you know, there's not never enough of places to go. There's never enough of experiences to be had, and there's always more things to discover and more people to meet and more joy to have and more fun times to experience. And and snowboarding was really offering that because it was just those big gathering of great people that were there for the same reason it was just to have fun and just have and to give it all really and that was always what I loved the most so what about the the future what does the future hold for you? I don't know I'm not good at looking into the future setting goals I'm no I'm just more that's a good a, way to be yeah I usually when I have an idea I just do it I like to do things that's the thing about me I just you know same thing with the collect of the jackets I just wanted to do something about it. Yeah. So I just do it. I don't think about it too much. I just go when I do it. Find a way of achieving it. Yeah. And Have you, you know, always had that? I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Never <laughs> never saw never saw boundary, barriers, just saw an opportunity to get something done, basically. Yeah, just not even ask yourself that question. Just do it. Yeah. Find a way to do it and do it. And the film project now? Yeah, get we're just done. doing it. Yeah. <laughs> But so do you have any more projects that you that you that you'd like to do i mean it sounds like you've got a lot of ideas a lot of opportunities and or are you just going to take this one and then see see where no, it goes? i just have an idea and i do it and that's what i'm doing now and then and i was thinking yeah then um we should probably find ways to cross over with the other girls doing other radical cool things and actually mix because we feed each other's uh in inspiration and i think ideas just always I just like to take a chance to 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 try my best at when a, an opportunity comes up. Yeah, like I've been um, offered a chance to uh, do interviews on the on the uh, surfing world championship with the ISA. Nice. And I love it, but I, you know, I just it's not it's not my job, but I, I love giving it a go because I find it so interesting. And actually in that, in that surrounding as well, like I don't really care so much about interviewing the winner, but I love interviewing the, the people that come because they want to participate. And I feel like there is so much more passion and there is so much more to be told about their stories than, than what we hear when we talk only about the professional side of the sport. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of the idea with this thing, really, to try and tell more of those interesting stories, really. So when you look back over what's a, you know, a long career, what, what are you proudest of? I love that you keep calling it a career. It's, it's actually really funny to me. Why is it funny? Uh, because I never uh, saw it that way, really. No? Even now, I don't know. I, all I want is just go up on the mountains and try power and have the time of my life, really. And then same thing with whatever comes up. But then if I look back, it's been a lot of different things happening, so yeah. I guess. You've earned a living, though. I mean, that's a good, yeah, that's a good, good sort of definition of a career, isn't it? You know, if you're lucky enough to, to be able to do it full time. But it would be really sad if all I got from it is just a salary. No, of course, you know? which is why I'm interested <laughs> in, in what, you, 
what when you look back and you think you know is this something that you're particularly proud of over those years no or are you looking into the future no <laughs> no i'm looking into uh it's gonna start snowing again on wednesday and i'm oh, yeah, in austria and I'm, i'm really looking forward to be shredding pow and being in the mountains and then i'm looking forward to being in iceland but i don't i don't really think like that i'm i just like to 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 take the best chance at what i'm doing now and really enjoying it because if you don't enjoy it then what's the point so that can be a struggle sometimes though when it is your job yeah because it is and that can be a struggle because um a lot of people expect a lot of things and then when you have sponsors do you have lots of obligations and yeah okay. there's all that thing but as much as i can i just shut that down yeah and i um i always kind of reassess where i'm going i think it's really important to ask yourself why you do what you do and and what is the value to yourself about it and is it really what you want to be doing Because if you don't ask yourself the, the, those questions, then you end up do, doing things you don't even want to be doing. Yeah. And so, and it is difficult to say, "Oh no, I actually don't want to be doing this. I'm going to change path." But I think that's the most uh, incredible thing for yourself that you will be doing. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question to to ask, but it takes a bit of bravery sometimes. I think maybe to to ask yourself that. But but I find it really exciting. You do. I think that's the most like all my motivation goes into those moments when you reinvent yourself or when you actually, um, yeah, ask yourself the right questions because otherwise there's no point. And, and if you, I actually had a quote for you, but I, <laughs> it's on my phone, so it's going to make noise if I look for Get it. Get it out, go for it, it's all good. If you've listened to this, you'll know there's, uh, there's a lot of background noise on this one. Okay, so let me just find it. Because when you asked me to do this interview, I just thought I was not uh, just ready yet in terms of maturity. And I thought I should... <laughs> you did say that. You did say, you, you did, we, I should say we were chatting yesterday and you were like, weren't you? Yeah, yeah I, the, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm... <laughs> on the way, we were listening to Lane Reachley's podcast. And she's so incredible. And what she's, she's achieved. She's a very, very you know, inspiring woman. And I was like, no way. <laughs> like, give me another 20 years to get a bit more, you know... She, she, well, a lot of what you were saying reminded me of what Lane was saying in, in, in the stories that she was telling about the surf industry in the 80s. I mean, it was the same shit, isn't it? It really is, you know. And for hearing her talk about that was was kind of was pretty mind-blowing, really. You know, the it fact is. that she like won seven world titles and is still... But to me, I'm not that inspired by those things, like the middle. No, I mean but the fact that she... What she's, she's achieved, done after. True, but the fact that she'd achieved that and still had to fight to gain the same as the men, you know. Yeah, well, that I can yeah. understand. So here is a quote for you um, by Bill Watterson. To invent your own life's meaning is not easy, but it's still allowed. And I think you'll be happier for the trouble. Well, I mean, that's a great point to end it. Um, how's it been for you? Have you enjoyed it? Thank you very much for having me. And um, thank you for all the, those podcasts because I think they actually give such a deeper sense of all those people that you interview. You know, we know that they're so great at what they do because we see what they do. But it's actually really interesting and inspiring to understand who they are and what was the motivated them in those moments to actually give us so much because I feel like that's the most beautiful thing about it is that in the end we give each other so much uh, inspiration, motivation and that's just a really beautiful thing. Well, thanks for listening and, uh, and thanks for coming on. Great to see you. So there you go. That was my conversation with Anflo Markser and I hope you enjoyed it. I think if you're a long-term listener to the, to the show, you're going to agree there's definitely a theme developing now among the female guests. When you consider how forward-thinking our sports are supposed to be and then hear the reality from so many high-profile women, as we've been lucky enough to on this show, about how many more obstacles stand in their way and how much harder they have to work before they stand on a snowboard, surfboard or skateboard, 
it really does prove the lie of that argument about how uh, rosy in the garden and progressive these sports are. And I think it's uh, it's brilliant that more and more people are speaking up about that. And the thing that really strikes me as well is the inherent double standard at work. You know, you get somebody like Terrier speaking up about the Olympics and he's a legend. Somebody like Amflor speaks about prize money and opportunity within the actual boundaries of the sport. And he's pegged as a, a bit of a gobshite and a troublemaker. Now, from what I know about Anne Floor, she could not give less of a shit about that, but it demonstrates the work left to be done and shows why it's all the more important that people like this stick their head above the parapet and point out that, no, actually, this is just wrong. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy listening to that one. And, uh, yeah, as you could probably tell, I was a little taken aback at the end there to be given such effusive praise about the podcast. First time I've interviewed somebody who's actually familiar with the show to that extent. Um, yeah, and I was pretty stoked about that. So uh, thanks for listening, and Flora, and thanks for coming on the show. Anyway, elsewhere in Feedback Corner, the messages continue to flood in. So thanks to everybody for that. Um, I had a great one last week, actually, in particular, from uh, UK snowboarding stalwart Eddie Spearin over on the Looking Sideways Facebook page. Now, Eddie is yet another of these people who uh, is an unsung hero of the scene. And he'd listened to the Tim Letton Boyce episode and was able to fill in uh, some of the gaps on there. So if you've listened to that one and want to find out more, head on over to my Facebook page to check that out. Yeah, like I say, Eddie is, is yet another really big presence in the UK action sports scene. And he's on the list to interview at some point, probably this summer when he's over in the UK from New Zealand. He's a huge influence on my own career and I've countless others. Always somebody great to chat to. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. Also, just want to give a big shout out to some of the other members of the Action Sports podcasting community who have been uh, getting in touch over the last few weeks to say hello and let me know how much they're enjoying the show, which is uh, brilliant, really. As I mentioned a while back, there's a lot of other action sports shows out there, and I, I do get a few emails a week these days from listeners asking me to recommend other shows. So I just, so I think, yeah, thanks to Eric at the uh, fucking Rad podcast, I think would be the correct pronunciation. Je Jacob at Snowboard Podden and Marco Action Sports uh, Podcast for the good words and go and check out each of those shows if you're looking for more good stuff to listen to so yeah there we go that's another one wrapped hope you enjoyed it um, if you did as usual like I said at the top get in touch and let me know and I'll see you next time nice one